McCleary said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. <laughs> and see. Why were you crying at the end? I was laughing. Oh, no, no, no. I, no, it sounded like Adam was crying at the end. He's sad. I know. I thought it was good. I liked it. It wasn't an insult. I just thought it was a good character choice. Thank you. Yeah. Adam uh, cries at the beginning and ending of every episode. Really? We're yeah. really getting to your emotional core. You know how sensitive I am, Olivia. Oh, I know. Welcome everyone to Ghost Party Radio, an in-depth and very serious exploration into the world of genre film hosted by two small-time cowards. I'm Adam. And I'm Trevor. Trevor, how are you doing today? Good, Adam. Uh, I have decided on this windy and very cold day to drop the bit up top and stop acting like you and I can't just talk to each other. Interesting. Wow, this is a big change in Ghost Party headquarters here. Would you like to introduce the guest? Uh, I would be happy to, but first, uh, are there any uh, listener reviews, Trevor? We do not have any listener reviews, but once this podcast does drop, please rate us five stars and roast us in the review, and we'll read it on the show right up top. You can rate us at iTunes Store. <laughs> you, can go the, you can go to the Apple Store uh, at any given mall. Uh, Spotify, of course, I think has reviews. Um, Adam knows this stuff better than he, I do because he actually has had a podcast and has a podcast. But yeah, but that sounds good. Anywhere you rate us, rate us five stars, roast us, and we'll read it at the top of the show. Yeah, you can't leave us a five star review and be nice. We will not read that. All right. Well, let's get straight to it. Uh, we have a very special guest on the show today, uh, actress extraordinaire living up in Seattle. Olivia Kreidel, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. Actually, uh, here's a fun fact, Trevor. Uh, Olivia is contractually obligated to be in my next short film. Is that true? You you, you sold your soul to the devil, Olivia? Um, yeah, it was written um, on a piece of paper at a Halloween party, and we both signed it, so oh, it <laughs> we're bonded. Yeah, so I'm holding you to that as soon as things get better after this P word. Oh, um, yeah. This panorama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, this, this Pandora. Yeah. Um, Olivia, so uh, this is a genre podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your favorite genre of film? Ooh, I don't know if this counts as a genre. I love a good period piece. I love a good uh, romance period piece. Pride and Prejudice, 2005, directed by Joe Wright. One of my faves. Emma, 2020, um, by Autumn DeWild, I think. But um, other than that, I love a good, like, sci-fi thriller, too. I like a good monster. Ooh. Yes. Are you excited for uh, Godzilla versus King Kong? Yes, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very excited. Same. Olivia, we've, we've gotten into some Yorgos Lanthimos talk. Uh, you like period pieces. Do you like The Favorite? I love The Favorite. Mm-hmm. I yeah, and I'm a really big Yorgos Lanthimos fan. So we spent like an entire hour uh, in the Killing of a Sacred Deer episode gushing over Yorgos. So um, this has become quite the Yorgos pod. Oh, I'm I'm glad to hear it. I feel like 
people don't talk enough about about him so i'm glad to know that you've dedicated your time that's right this is your place for your ghosts yes (laughs) Um, pm so then uh let's go back to period piece which i think trevor that that's considered a genre it's pretty broad but i'll accept it um olivia what in your mind makes for a good period piece a good understanding of the language Mm -hmm. and like the cultural I'm thinking of like also Handmaiden um, and like a good understanding of like uh, the cultural ties of the time, like depending on the country and like the historical background and the context. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love a good accent. Mm. Yeah, we actually wa- we watched The Handmaiden for this series also. Really? Yeah. So I <laughs> think. Yeah. Did we bring you on for the wrong movie? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, no, because I'm really glad to have watched this one. But mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think uh, you sound like you'd be a good host. Maybe we get rid of Trevor and bring Olivia in here. Perfect. I mean, I'm the ready. first person who's going to go is not going to be Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so then the genre of choice that we're talking about today is uh, our revenge saga. Um, what is your history with revenge, Olivia, on and off s- screen? Oh, I don't know if I have very much off-screen revenge stories to tell. Um, I feel like the first movie that comes to mind on the theme of revenge for me is uh, Burning. I think about that last scene like once a week. Um, but other than that, I just feel like every time I watch like a revenge film, it feels very cathartic, not because I have a lot of like things to feel vengeful about, but it feels really good to watch people like pursue, uh, their own revenge and see it in action, however it manifests. Yeah, it feels good. Yeah. You know, I kind of wanted to get burning in on this. Uh, we, we have a guest bringing movies, you know, and I wanted burning to get in here somewhere, but. I think I'm just going to have to watch it alone after all this. Have you not watched it? Yeah, actually, I saw it in uh, it was an anecdote I brought up earlier, but I saw it in uh, as a double feature with the director in Santa oh. Monica. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's really good. Although I'm not At a... the Arrow Theater. Ooh, I love the Arrow. <laughs> I, I'm actually not a big uh, Murakami guy. Oh, really? Yeah, but I, lo- I love this film. Yeah, it's a very, very good one. Um. All right, so this is how we're going to run it down. We're going to start off the show with um, some letterbox reviews that I think Trevor will bring to us here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, we're going to talk about uh, all things context for the movie, talk about uh, Lynn Ramsey and Joaquin Phoenix. We're going to talk about what we liked about the film, what we didn't like, talk about performances, uh, what makes it special within this genre of revenge, and then we're going to rate this baby. Yeah, Olivia... I didn't really tell you about our rating system, but it's very profound. And okay. uh, we're excited for you to experience it at the end of the show here. Awesome. I'm excited. Uh, Trevor, you want to take it away with the letterboxed? Absolutely. So these are the letterbox reviews for this movie called You Were Never Really Here. So directed by Lynn Ramsey. Let's read what my friends have to say on the old Leber talks over there at Captain Dills. Follow me if you have a letterboxed. I have a list on there of all of the Ghost Party Radio movies we're doing. And then I will, of course, rank them all within their given series based on 
what Adam just explained is our completely arbitrary rating system. Uh, by the way, uh, completely bulletproof rating system and will always 100% of the time make sure it gives us the best of each genre. Uh, okay, so first review here is from Jay, username Jay on Letterboxd. He says, Joaquin Phoenix whacking pedophiles with a hammer. Call it whacking Phoenix. Perfect. Nice. Love a good pun. Yeah. I was hoping for a lot more dead air after that one, but okay. <laughs> um, senior writer at IndieWire, David Ehrlich, who we'll probably talk about a lot on this podcast when it comes to reviews on Letterboxd. Uh, my favorite writer, right next to uh, friend of the show, Kevin Cookman, who we had on for The Handmaiden. Uh, I never really agree with David Ehrlich, but I think he's pretty good at writing. He says, Lynn Ramsey directing Walking Phoenix in a super art house taken, complete with Adam point blank stylings. Wow. Yes, and we know what that means now because we had, of course, uh, cinematographer Justin Moron to talk about point blank, so we understand these references now. Uh, have y'all seen Taken? Nope. No, I haven't. <laughs> Interesting, because I have seen Taken, and uh, a lot of these reviews mention Taken. Like, oh, this is an art house version of Taken. And, uh, you're not missing anything in terms of uh, uh, this movie comparing to it, because I didn't get Taken at all when I watched this movie, so I'm so surprised that people's go-to revenge movie is Taken. Yeah, I would double feature this with, like, I mean, it's easy to say, but any Paul Thomas Anderson movie, especially the later ones, just because... I feel like it kind of hits that tone a little bit, and we have Johnny Greenwood doing score, and we have Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I agree with you. That would make for a better double feature. Taken is just kind of, I don't know, it's like a Luc Besson-produced movie. It was the big comeback for Liam Neeson. Anyways, third review from Felipe Furtado. I like to read read two positive reviews and then uh, what I call the Adam review, the negative (laughs) review of the film. Uh, formally precise, making good use of Ramsey's immersive talents. The material is pure junk, though, with a silly taxi driver notion of grandeur. Uh, intellectually dishonest, so so lugubrious. I don't know this word. <laughs> so lugubrious, and all of Ramsey's razzle dazzles don't justify the film's macho posturing. Wow, who who wrote that? I don't know, but I butchered it, uh, and it was written by Felipe Furtado. So uh, Felipe. Felipe banned from the show i mean hey we'll get to it but maybe i maybe i agree with felipe how dare you oh whoa we're not here to talk about that we're here to talk about you were never really here and uh let's get some initial thoughts Uh, olivia what did you think about this movie i i loved it and i think it's really well i kind of wrote this to you yesterday but i think it's really full for being so short and I feel like Lynn Ramsey was really able to like succinctly tell this story without losing like any nuance to it especially because it's only really like 84 minutes so it finished and I was like wait we're done there's nothing else (laughs) Um, and this was your first time watching it so did you have like any history with it really before no I hadn't even watched the trailer Interesting. (laughs) so I really did not know anything about what it was about Mm. what about you Trevor um, well, it's interesting that your guest hasn't seen this movie because this was your pick, right, uh, out of the Revenge series? Right. So and if, in case anyone's wondering, like, why hasn't the guest seen the movie? The guest usually brings on the movie. It's because two movies out of every series that we do are picked by myself and then Adam gets one as well. Yeah. But my history with this movie is we mentioned this theater uh, literally once an episode. I went and oversaw it over at the University Town Center in Irvine. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually ended up booking it at the Frida uh, on a double bill where we had a week where we had um, You Were Never Really Here playing with uh, the French film 
from uh, Caroline uh, Fargeau called Revenge. The movie was just called Revenge. So in one theater, we have two auditoriums at the theater. We had You Were Never Really Here, directed by Lynn Ramsey, playing. And then at 10 p.m. every night, uh, Revenge would be playing. So I I thought it was a really interesting um, two movies that would be playing in the theater at the same time, just Revenge movies directed by women. Um, I've seen this movie once. Last night was my second time seeing it. They call me Dr. Runtime. The The listeners of the show call me Dr. Runtime. And I was fascinated that it was 89 minutes long. I did not remember it was that short. Yeah, it was kind of a bummer, too, because I was just so into it. I would have loved to have seen, like, just blowed out that third act. You know, I want to see more there. Yeah, I think um, you mean, like, after, I don't want to, is this yeah, spoilers? Can, yeah, if big, I say this? big time spoilers. Okay, spoiler alert, when he goes to the lake, are you talking about that and then what happens after? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, and even more with uh, him and the girl, I think I would have been happy to see. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more action at the end there with Nina. Mm-hmm. Um, Y'all want a sequel to this? Yeah, why not? I don't know if I want a sequel, but I would have just liked to have seen more of their dynamic. How about a roadshow version? Like a like a paper moon or something yeah. like where it's just him and her on the road. I don't know. I'd watch that. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So my uh, I, I saw this in theaters. Also, I saw it in Burbank. Actually, where movies live. Um, <laughs> they. Uh, I took my cousin to see it because we're both giant Radiohead fans, and we saw Johnny Greenwood doing the stu- the score, and so it was an easy sale. Um, we loved it then, and uh, I was excited to bring it back to the show and watch it again and have an excuse to watch it. And I think I loved it even more now. Um, there's a lot of a lot of crisp style in this movie, which I feel like you wouldn't expect from a more art housey movie. And then there's also uh, some great moments of humanity that I think we'll get into a little bit. Um, Olivia, I'm very excited to have you here today because I had you on my podcast. And you're a fantastic actress. And we watched a documentary, which we didn't really get to break down the acting of, which is kind of a missed opportunity. But now, let's talk about some performances. What did you like, Olivia? Um, Well, obviously, Joaquin Phoenix is like the focal point of this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he gives such like a... Obviously, he's an incredible actor. And I think he gives a really, really nuanced and like simple performance in this movie like I you feel so much sympathy for him not only because he's been traumatized but because he feels for other people as well like even the people that he hurts um and I think about the scene where he's in Williams's house in the room and he like has to pull off his shirt because he can't be there anymore and for me that was and the scene where he lays on the ground in his childhood home in the kitchen with the man mm-hmm. um i'm trying not to give spoilers but... all right so yeah the the context for this is um people have already seen the movie coming oh in awesome okay yeah after he shoots like the agents that are in his house mm-hmm. um after they've killed his mother and he sees her body through the window and then he lays on the ground and they're singing that song together mm-hmm. and he ends up well, the agent holds his hand, but he ends up holding hands back with him. I thought that was such a, like, beautifully, uh, like, 
beautiful moment of his own humanity and how even though he's fighting for this cause or he's hired to uh, get this girl back, he still feels for the people who are kind of just entangled in this greater web of like horror and uh, like the, the the pitfalls of humanity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great scene, and I read that he he actually hit, uh, improv that. He improv the part where he laid down and started singing this song. I don't know if he improv the holding of the hand thing, but I, I I doubt he did because of what you're saying. It's so interlinked into the themes of the movie and him actually somehow sympathizing with these people who are caught up in this bigger like web, like you mentioned. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is my favorite scene of the movie. I think it's a nice little cherry on top um, because it is so human. And these two men who are grieving these different things and uh, Joaquin's character kind of just like letting go of it all at the same time, you know, with, with this other guy who's grieving his own death, you know, who's falling out of it. I mean, I feel like Lynn Ramsey, Joaquin Phoenix, even that third guy all kind of touched on something bigger than human in this scene. Yeah, and I feel like one of the, like, key moments in that scene that really, like, at least hit home for me is she hones in on the agent's eye, and I think you can see his eye, like, dilate or do something, and he, like, knows he's going to die, Mm -hmm. and so he reaches out for Joaquin Phoenix's hand or Joe's hand, and and then they hone back in on the eye, and he's gone. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was like such a good moment. Like you don't want to be alone in your last moments. And so this person is here and he like has taken your life, but you also feel like you want to hold on to one last thing before you go. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, this is the, and, and speaking about just like base and performances here, you mentioned this is the Joker Phoenix show. Like this is, I mean, he's, he's had a run we had mentioned on the um, Killing of a Sacred Deer episode how Nicole Kidman probably had, or at least in my opinion, had the best 2010s of any actress in my opinion. Of course, everyone is up to their own thing. But I think Joaquin Phoenix probably had the best 2010s just based on his filmography. Uh, Adam Driver is up there as well. But just the fact that this is like this little 89-minute gem in his filmography and he's like so intensely good in it. And he, I would say he's probably the number one actor that when I see him on screen, I I almost I almost never like him at first. And then he ends up just winning me over by the time the movie's over. It's just somebody who I don't want to believe is a great actor. And he just absolutely is. And uh, I, I think he packed on some weight for this role. I didn't read that in the trivia or anything. I could just kind of tell he packed on weight for this, which is interesting because he must have had to have lost it very soon after that for joker but adam what did you think of joker's performance (laughs) i mean uh lynn definitely gave joaquin more to work with here i think than uh what's his name phillips who did the joker heavy agree yeah and and the fact that like um the fact that joaquin gets recognized for the joker over something like this or over something like uh the master is kind of a bummer um he nails it here. I love watching him burst and, and go through all these complicated emotions. Uh, yeah. I I, well, we're getting into it very early here, but I, let's talk about the 2010s if you're Joker Phoenix. 
Um, you're in uh, two Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, his performance in The Master is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He's very functional, very good in Inherent Vice, which is probably my least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Anybody who's listening to this who's like really into that movie probably is like, oh no, but like yeah, it's, it's generally seen as not his worst movie, but maybe his least accessible. That, um, it absolutely is, but I think uh, the more that I watch it, the more I love it. The thing that I like about Inherent Vice, and here comes a tangent real quick, is that it was sold to me as this movie is going to be inaccessible and i watched it and i was like yep it was inaccessible you did a great job uh with pinch on buddy you, you really made a pinch on book into a movie that i could not penetrate in any way so uh have you only was, seen he, it once I, i've seen it seen it twice yeah. i think it's a great collection of scenes uh which uh, paul thomas anderson is the best director of scenes in my opinion mm-hmm. currently living uh but those scenes did not come together sometimes they don't in his movies but uh, like the master to me is the same thing it's just a collection of scenes i just absolutely love all of the scenes mm-hmm. you know what i mean like if that makes any sense mm-hmm. but anyway so joaquin phoenix gets to make his paul thomas anderson movies he gets to make his weird lynn ramsey movie he gets to put these filmmakers up on a pedestal and i was having a conversation about uh, chloe Zhao and barry jenkins about how their uh, chloe Zhao is going to make the eternals and barry jenkins is going to make lion king 2 and I had some volunteers who were really into both those filmmakers, and they did not understand why those two filmmakers would possibly do that. Just like someone would be like, why in the world would Joaquin Phoenix make a Joker movie with Todd Phillips? It just doesn't make any sense. He has this – he was awesome in Her with Spike Jones. Uh, he's just been awesome. He, he was really, really good in a You Won't Get Far on Foot. Uh, don't worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, the Gus Van Sant movie. And it just simply comes down to Barry Jenkins, Chloe Zhao, and um, Joker Phoenix. If they do these movies, and these movies like Joker make a billion dollars worldwide, we can get 20 You Were Never Really Here's in the 2020s. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Or if Barry Jenkins makes Lion King 2, we get to watch Barry Jenkins movies for the rest of our lives. Chloe Zhao makes The Eternals. We get to watch Chloe Zhao movies for the rest of their lives. It's just that one detour that these people make, these filmmakers, these actors. Here's the big difference. Joaquin Phoenix had to suffer through making a Todd Phillips movie, and then he won the Oscar for doing it. <laughs> right? Like, who gets to who gets to who gets to do that? Like, it was so odd to me that he was paid off that well for that movie, and now we get more Joaquin, we get more Joker Phoenix now. So, how do you guys feel about that? I I think it's a little bit of a double edged sword here because uh, on one hand we're going to get some cool Joaquin Phoenix movies, on the other hand we're going to get more Joker movies. <laughs> more todd phillips directed joker movies. yeah mr hangover who thinks he's hot stuff and gets nominated I, over greta gerwig to be fair you were already going to get more joker movies so at least the double-edged sword had the one edge of the sword and that's joaquin <laughs> phoenix getting all of these awesome movies made in the 2020s mm-hmm. i think um i will never be upset for more Joaquin Phoenix movies. And I think that obviously I'm like speaking way out of turn because I don't know him at all or his personality or his thought process. But I feel like if he has the ability to choose what types of films he's in, like You Were Never Really Here and The Master and all these other films, and he chose to make Joker, he can also choose to go back and make smaller art house films that challenge him more intellectually and as an actor. Uh, the only positive outcome is that he fronts these small movies that allow filmmakers to get their work out there. 
smaller filmmakers to get their work out there. Yeah, it's the same reason that uh, Pattinson used his Twilight money to basically lift up uh, the the Safties or to get another Claire Denis movie made. Um, but then now he's and then he you know he got an Eggers movie made that him fronting those movies and being the star of those movies gets those movies made. But then, like, he's running out of his currency a little bit, and now all of a sudden he has to go be the Batman. <laughs> and it's like, uh, that's just kind of what Walking Phoenix had to do. And I, I love, um, there's a couple things that we talk about on this show. Um, ghost directors we like to talk about. Uh, and then I think this will be a new thing going forward is kind of the one for you, one for them type thing. But with Joaquin, it's like five for, five for me, one for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think going forward in the 2020s, it'll be like, you know, 10 for me, one for you. Maybe I'll make a Joker sequel or something at the very end of the 2020s and just give the studios what they want so I can keep making awesome movies with awesome directors. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of those cool anomalies that I like to think about in Hollywood where, you know, you're so talented that you just steamroll over everything. You kind of break the matrix. Like um, when uh, Coppola was nominated for two Best Pictures and two Best Director Awards at the Oscars, I think, in the same year. It's like, it's fun to see these things. You can't be stopped. And, you know, Joaquin Phoenix doing the Joker movie sucks. And hopefully we never have uh, uh, a guest on here that likes the Joker. But it's cool that uh, he, he goes to do this movie. Movie is the movie. And then he still ends up winning the Oscar because he rules. Yeah, I mean, he, and, and I, I saw Joker and he, he's really good in it. I mean, like, that's that's the thing you watch is like he's kind of doing his thing and he's very good. And of course, it's like, but, every, you know, us three were like, why did he win the Oscar for Joker? Although we'll get to it, Adam, but he did win a, a very specific award at a very specific film festival for Best Actor for You Were Never Really Here. Uh, Olivia, do you know what uh, award ceremony he might be talking about? Yeah, uh, at Cannes, right? Didn't yeah. He? Yeah, and she won Best Screenwriter. Yes, there was a tie for Best Screenplay with uh, another film we did on the show. Um, uh, it was The Handmaiden. Mm-hmm. No, oh. no, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, it was uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yes, man, so many good new movies we've discussed already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Before we move away from Joker, y'all have heard or read that letterbox review that like went like super viral about Joker, right? I don't think so. Which one? It's just simply the person put, uh, of course, if you've never swum in the ocean, you think a, uh, oh no, I messed it up. Of course, if you've never swum in the ocean, you think a puddle is deep. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen that one. <laughs> it's like, so it just is perfect. It's like, it's like, I don't know. It's just, and then someone recently, I think it was David Fincher said that it was like, borderline irresponsible to mental illness to make that film and i 100 percent agree yeah. yeah i agree as well yeah i think overall it was just irresponsible filmmaking you, you guys know that joke uh about a guy who's only ever seen um boss baby and then he watches a second movie for the first time and he says this is giving me some heavy boss baby vibes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's really funny Oh my god. All right, so let's get back to uh let's get back to some good stuff with Lynn Ramsey. Uh what what is the legacy of this movie, Trevor? I, I mean, so I I'm only familiar with Lynn Ramsey from uh we need to talk about Kevin. That's the only film I've seen from Lynn Ramsey and of course uh her, her second film was supposed to be I mean not her second film, sorry, but the one after we need to talk about Kevin was supposed to be Jane's Got a Gun with Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman was producing it. 
Um, reportedly, Lynn Ramsey did not show up to the first day of filming because she had some massive, massive disagreements with the producers. So uh, it was a long time. We need to talk about Kevin was like 2011, maybe? 11, yeah. Yeah, to, to, to when she made this, which came out in 2018. 2018, great year for movies, by the way. So um, it was sort of a Patty Jenkins situation where it was like Patty Jenkins made Monster and then didn't make a movie again until uh, Wonder Woman, which is crazy that these great filmmakers don't don't make movies more often. Uh, in the case of Lynn Ramsey, what, what's your experience with her as a filmmaker? Um, this I've seen only parts of We Need to Talk About Kevin. Um, every time I try to watch it, it's just inc- she makes incredibly heavy movies. Like this movie is pretty heavy. But we need to talk about Kevin is just really gut-wrenching. So it's really hard for me to get through it. And I've never actually watched it all the way through, sadly, even though it is a great movie. But um, I thought she has such a clear eye and vision for what she wants. Like, the way that she is able to tell this story in seemingly so few words and really through heavy action... Um, and in such a short amount of time, I think really speaks to her command of like understanding of storytelling and direction. Um, and so I was just really blown away by her work. Yeah. And this is my, I haven't seen, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, which uh, I'll definitely put on my list, but this, I agree with Olivia completely here and I'm, I'm totally sold on any future Lynn Ramsey projects. Speaking of which. Um, on her IMDb, it says she has a movie coming out that's like a sci-fi movie based on Moby Dick, which sounds cool as hell. Wow. Amazing. I'm on. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't wait for that next one. Um, so doesn't she have a quote or she said at some point in an interview that she's like known for being difficult, um, which I think is kind of funny because there's so many like male directors and actors and who are known for being difficult and everyone like lauds them high praise mm-hmm. um like but lynn ramsey she's yeah exactly but like lynn ramsey is like i'm difficult and very particular and everyone's like ah we're not gonna get your movies produced <laughs> yeah i just mentioned one david fincher who everyone um bows at the feet of and i like some of the fincher movies but he's famously difficult to work with and if you go back and i'm a box office nerd most of his movies don't even make money so why is david fincher still making movies <laughs> I'm happy about it. I love me some Fincher. What, what, what was the box office for this one? Box office for this movie was, uh, I would not say it was a massive success. It's not getting Lynn Ramsey the the massive, massive budget to make that sci-fi Moby Dick movie. <laughs> right. But I would assume this is probably her biggest one. I mean, uh, I've seen it in theaters, which says something. Yeah, and it had that Amazon money behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Joaquin Phoenix wants to star in your movie. It's going to get made, and Amazon's going to give you the money to make it. Um, right. uh, but can I can I take us to a segment real quick, a, a brand new game that we haven't played on the show before? You got it. It's not a game, but it's more of like a trivia thing. It's called Cans You Do the Cans Cans. Okay. And it's when we talk about <laughs> Can Film right. Festival on this show. As many listeners know, Adam and I had an idea for a podcast called Palm Diorks, where we were going to go through and talk about all the Palm Dior winners. And then once we had watched about 20 of them, I then went to Adam and said, what if we just did Ghost Party Radio and it was a genre podcast? So <laughs> now we know way too much about uh, the Cannes winners, Palm Dior winners from 1940 to 1960 or so. 
But um, so Lynn Ramsey, and I have a theory here, but the film received a seven minute ovation, standing ovation once it had screen, which is like a big thing in Cannes. People love to stand up and clap for like yeah. unheard of amounts of time. <laughs> Uh, Lynn Ramsey won Best Screenplay, which I think is really interesting. I, I think I think this movie's screenplay is very good. I think the direction is better than the screenplay. But uh, also Best Actor went to Walking Phoenix, which we just uh, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very funny video of it online where he wins and he turns to Rooney Mara, his partner, and is like, "Should I? Do I go up there? Or should I? Because you know, because he doesn't speak French, and it's like always an awkward thing at Cannes <laughs> when you go up. Um, so Lynn Ramsey sent the an unfinished version of this movie to Cannes, and that's how it got in. And I'm curious, the way that the film is directed and edited and where you most notably, you don't really see any of the violence happen in the action. You just kind of see the aftermath of the violence. Like there's a lot of blood. When you think of this movie, you do think of blood and violence and stuff, but you don't actually see a lot of it happen except for the suicide at the end in the diner when he like pulls the trigger and they obviously have the splat pack behind his head and all that. That's the only time you ever actually see him commit like on camera full violence she'll cut around it and stuff like that but the movie is 89 minutes long it's very very succinct do you think the unfinished version she sent to can shaped the finished version that we got do we know anything about the unfinished version it is was it longer just, it, it, no it was just a it was just a little bit it was a little bit uh shorter actually which is oh, really really okay. interesting yeah <laughs> hmm. um i'm not really sure i really enjoyed the choice to not show the violence Mm -hmm. because i don't think that's necessarily what the movie is about it's just kind of a symptom of his profession and what's happened to him throughout his life um so i don't really know like it's really interesting that it was even shorter because i can't imagine it being any shorter than it already is what she had must have added to it yeah, I think, you know, I also I also really love that choice. I mean, I'm a big action guy, um, and I feel like this is sort of perfect for an, a cool action scene. But I loved the way that it went about this. I was still feeling like the uh, the tension from these moments because we still got the wandering through the hallways and the mm-hmm. cut. The cuts were so like deliberate, it felt it would specifically cut back to a certain point of the violence or after the violence. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm full on board. I don't know if it's hard to say. I mean, that it still feels deliberate. It feels like that was the intention, even from the screenplay, maybe. Yeah, and that, that could very well be. I haven't read the screenplay, but my um, theory, which we always like to throw theories on the show, is that she sent an unfinished version. It played extremely well, like an incredibly, incredibly well. And then she was like, maybe, yeah, maybe I don't need to put back in all of the stuff that we kind of rushed to get edited out and all that stuff. And she was like, I think it just plays very well as is, which um, filmmaking is all about happy accidents. And to me, um, I, I was reading David Ehrlich and he, his uh, full review in IndieWire. He was talking about how the movie to him, even though he loved it, he gave it four stars, which is huge for him. <laughs> uh, he said that it felt like it had been hacked to death by uh, the studio, which would be Amazon and stuff like that. And to me, it doesn't at all. It just feels like a, Full decision that she was making throughout the movie, so I'm just I'm just curious if it may have been a happy accident that she sent kind of a rushed version of the film to Can, and then she was like, "Wait, this really works. I'm very actually happy with this, and this kind of feels avant garde." I could see that. Yeah, yeah. You know, 80, 89 minutes is just so short for a movie. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, I just feel like the 
violence, like if you had seen more of it up close, I think it, it would have sent it over the edge in a way that I don't think would accurately convey her story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad that she, if she had had more gore and violence in it, that she hacked it to death in that way. Um, because it, you still feel all of the tension and like everything that she wants you to experience without being triggered by the sight of blood. I'm a big like fear of blood, lots of gore person. Mm-hmm. I can't really watch like Tarantino films and stuff because of all of that. But um, I I enjoyed the selective use of blood and violence. How did you feel about that last scene then in the diner? I screamed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it happened so quickly. And I think she and Joaquin Phoenix probably went through like the steps very clearly and it felt really clean Mm -hmm. it didn't feel drawn out he just like brings it up and he does it really quick and also um when the blood splatters on him in the hotel room Mm -hmm. uh when the guard is there like it's just so quick that you don't even have time to process what's going on because then the next thing is happening um i yeah i don't i don't enjoy languishing in violence yeah, and the, the most notable scene, the one that I like, kind of like was rubbing my hands together when I saw it again for the second time, was like, oh, here comes the security camera scene where we get to see him go through this like, uh, you know, pedophile ring essentially with the with a hammer, and just hammer all these dudes, and like the way the way that it shot is fully removed from the violence. Mm-hmm. And yes, we kind of see him hitting people with a hammer, but like most of the time he'll walk into a door, you'll see him swing the hammer, the hammer will be like behind the shot, and then the person will fall into the frame, then he'll keep hammering or whatever. So I just think that the the the, the way that she chose to portray the violence, because like you said, Olivia, that's not the point of the movie is to show the violence. The point is to show the aftermaths of the violence and what has happened to Joaquin Phoenix's character, what has happened to the young girl, etc. Yeah, and I think it links back to the title, right? The idea of uh, of sort of he being a ghost after, after I don't know the trauma from war or whatever. Um, the fact that he is kind of a ghost. We don't even see the action really happen. He just goes through, and people are dead. Yeah, and I feel like um, I'm just gonna hit on like a true crime nerd thing real quick, but. His choice of weapon, too, like, not only the fact that he has a gun, but he selectively chooses a different kind of weapon to use, I think is enough for you to imply, like, oh, I know what kind of pain and, like, struggle these people will go through before they die. So you don't need to even see it to know that it will be bad. Mm-hmm. If Like, a hammer is a very strong choice, and it's, like, you have to be close to people to hit them. And so I feel like that says a lot about, like, number one, what he's been through. Number two, what Votto asks him to do. And how he feels about these people when he does the job, basically. Yeah, and I, we see him smile, don't we, when uh, when he sees the hammer? Yeah, and there's two types, and he picks, like, the heavy-duty one. <laughs> I love that. Um so let's get into some of the favorite scenes. What stands out to wait, you? Wait, wait, hold on, Adam. And this has been Cans You Do the Cans Cans. Back to you, Adam. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, so <laughs> what are some of your favorite, least favorite standout moments here? I know we kind of already touched on some, but uh, what are some others? 
Well, definitely the 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 burial at the lake uh, with the mom mm-hmm. uh, that stood out to me a lot the first time, and we, we we haven't gotten fully to the Greenwood score, but that's where the Greenwood score really like took my breath away, and then we actually yeah. hear the repri- the reprise of it in the uh, end credits. But that that scene where he uh, has to bury his mom in the water and then puts the rocks in his pocket and is trying to um, drown himself, and then he sees um, what's the little girl's name? Sorry, I, I can't. Nina. Remember. Nina. Yeah. I, dang it, I was going to guess that. Did we have another Nina on an episode recently? Yeah, uh, Promising Young Woman. Oh, right, there you go. Yeah, so another Nina. There. That's why I didn't think it was Nina. But then yeah, he's using the vision of Nina. Uh, and I, that scene is, like, beautiful and, like, so, so avant-garde. I loved it. The way her hair, like, her strands of hair are out of the bag and they, like, swirl around in the water. And the way that it, it's lit, like, the spotlight on him and the spotlight on her the body bag as it like floats or like sinks down i thought was so beautiful yeah i mean you know i'm a sucker for the greenwood score at any moment in this film i do think i i remember that scene not being as impactful the first time i saw it but this time i was really like oh man this is where i felt he was never really here you know him ready to go Mm -hmm. um so let's talk i want to talk about these scenes uh of i guess when he was deployed when he was a soldier um, I, I think that's part of the implication to uh, why he feels disconnected with the world, right? Because he gave a girl a candy bar and then she ran away, but then she got uh, killed for the candy bar, I think was, the, was what was going on there. Yes, that's what it seems like. And I think he kind of sees like his good deeds like end up hurting other people. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of like, oh, well, why try mm-hmm. <laughs> when what I'm meant to do will only lead to harm is what it felt like. And the also we also get a flashback of him, I believe, wearing an FBI hat where he opens up the back of the truck and he sees all of the dead bodies in there, which is like so horrifying. Uh, the scene where he has to take the picture for the young ladies on the street. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And she, oh, that's such a good moment, too, where he just has that one like raw moment of connection with that girl. Um. I thought, yeah, very beautiful. Yeah, and there's a little bit of uh, some juicy mise-en-scene going on right before that where, um, because the camera's angled that were behind Joaquin Phoenix as he's walking down the street, and um, we see the girls, like, talking and laughing and whatever, and there's a man who passes by and, like, really takes a long, gross look at these girls as he walks past them. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I'll have to go back and look at that. Um, I mean, I'm interested how much of the footage of just driving through New York. Uh, wait, no, this is supposed to be in Cincinnati, huh? I think he lives in New York, but his last job was in Cincinnati. Right, right, right. How, when I'm curious how much of the footage um, that Lynn gets is like literally just random people, because um, you're probably right about the mise en scene, but I would not be surprised if that was just an actual dude walking through the streets. Mm-hmm. Sort of perfect. If you were those girls, would you have asked Joaquin Phoenix's character to take a picture of you? No, he looks so scary. <laughs> I don't think I would have asked a grizzled middle-aged man uh, to take a photo of me. Right. I, I typically, if I ask strangers to take photos of me, I look for people around my age. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel most comfortable. Yeah. Or like moms. Right. I mean, this guy doesn't look like he knows how to use a smartphone, you know, the- yeah, I, I thought it was the most ludicrous part of the entire movie that she would <laughs> single out Joker Phoenix to be like, come take a picture of us. She's like, he looks safe. 
Well, maybe, I mean, look, we still, he's still handsome, right? Even with this look. Maybe she just had a little crush on him. <laughs> she picks Joker Phoenix out and is like, yeah, I'm going to ask him to hold my camera and make prolonged eye contact with, with me. Yeah, maybe she can get his number afterwards. Um, I... <laughs> Trevor, what stood out to you? Well, that's the part that got cut out of the movie, right? Adam is the part where they have a, a romantic subplot, which is actually in Joker and horrible, oh by the way. It's the so bad. <laughs> Jeez, dude. That's that's what I think is part of the most irresponsible, uh, the most irresponsible part maybe of that movie is that it's trying to show all these incels out there who are watching this movie and who are going to think that Joker's the hero that like, hey, if a girl doesn't like you, no, just keep trying, keep hassling her. It's okay. It'll turn around eventually. Yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad this movie just had this weird cut away from his odd interaction from those ladies and then just, like, cuts away from him to just him being weird again. I think he's going to uh, buy the drugs. Oh, yeah, but, but that scene is interesting where he says, um, uh, don't, does he say, don't make me wait or don't make me late? My my subtitle said he, he punches the the drug dealer. That's a drug dealer, right? Yeah. He punches a, uh, him or her, I don't remember. And then uh, I'm, I'm hoping it's a him. Uh, and... Uh, says don't make me wait or don't make me late i think it's don't make me late i thought it was wait yeah i thought it was wait but my my subtitle said late anyways definitely cut that out not worth talking no i like that i like there's a discourse here about what actually happened this is like the blue dress yeah yeah yeah, it was gold (laughs) um but yeah, as far as other sequences, I liked. Um, I really liked when um, the young actress. Oh, by the way, we haven't talked about her performance. She's mostly just a, a Russian model, from what I could. I looked up, and I couldn't really find any other movies she had been in. Um, but I thought she was quite good in, in this movie, and she kind of just plays that stoic character. And every once in a while, she has like the "It's okay, Joe" moments at towards the end. Like I thought that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's a scene I took a picture of it and put it on Instagram because. Of course, I can't watch a movie without putting a picture of it on Instagram. Otherwise, people wouldn't know I like movies. Um, <laughs> where she's kind of just looking out the window. And it's, it's, a, it's a classic shot. But she, you see the rain on the window. And it's kind of just it's just a moment between two abused people. Um, and just like, I don't know. The, the stuff that that character has been through. It's just such, a, such an immediately sympathetic character. I, I really liked her performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it as well. And I think that for it maybe being one of her first performances i think i thought it was pretty strong like you're you have to understand what she's been through in order to portray that and i think she does a pretty beautiful job she doesn't need to be crying and manic and all of these things for us to know that she has like seen the worst of humanity um and she's lost trust in in people that like her father worked with and who he was close with and so i think that very quickly taints your view of how to go on in the world Mm -hmm. yeah and i i love that connection between them because i mean there is really not much dialogue if any dialogue about uh their two pasts but at the diner you know you you start rooting for them that they have each other it's like a really nice uh connection that they have and i hope they go forward and you know they they find happiness out there yeah, it's a and beautiful the, day. The young actress's name is Ekaterina Samsonov, by the way. I didn't want to go through the whole thing with that. And it doesn't seem like she wants to really make movies anymore. It's not really doing anything. I I read that, like, again, she's just like a Russian model. She's like, I think she's like not even 20 years old yet. Yeah, I so. read she was like 18. Hmm. Yeah. 
interesting um speaking of beautiful day i do love that line at the end um did you know that this movie was released in germany and france as the name uh, a beautiful day really yeah so imagine watching the movie called a beautiful day and then two characters at the very end the last two lines are it's a beautiful day it's a beautiful day (laughs) (laughs) you watch all of that and you're like is it a beautiful day (laughs) that's the question um yeah, I think so. Wait, so the senator uh, is probably the biggest twist in the movie, I think. Right. I, I completely had forgotten about that part. It is there an implication that he wasn't it wasn't a suicide that uh, that he was pushed off. They show him stepping off towards the end, mm-hmm. but I just find it so hard to believe mm-hmm. like he wants his daughter to come home. Right. And he asks for Joe to hurt them. And then Joe does his job successfully. And then at the same time, he is like, nope, I don't want to be alive anymore. Yeah. I just found it incongruent. Yeah, I have to assume that, uh, you know, because we don't, we're kind of like getting more into the muddled parts of the movie at this point where uh, we realize, oh, this is high up. This has to do with like the people who are in charge around here. And I feel like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. They, She was their favorite, the governor's favorite or whatever. Um, yeah. So, of course, he was probably upset uh, about that whole revenge tale. Yeah, and by the way, the, the governor is played by uh, Alessandro Nivola, who is just always a great dirtbag. I love when I see him show up in movies. He always plays like that scumbag. <laughs> I was going to say, the way he walks out of that building in the one scene with his hands in his pocket, and I was like, I know he's not a good guy. You can just tell by the way that he walks. <laughs> Oh, I love the, the the kid that Joaquin Phoenix grabs before he goes into the, um, the 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 building and he throws in the car and he's like fairly nice to the guy. He's like, "Listen, I'm not going to kill you, but like, just give me all the information." And then he like kind of just knocks him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, "Please no," and he's just like, "Go to sleep." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it is a moral gray area, I think, for that guy. I mean, f that guy for working for them in the first place. Right. His justification is like, I just work for them. I don't do anything. It's like, yo, but you know what they're doing. Yeah. You know what floor they keep the little girls on. So <laughs> how implicated are you really? I, I feel like there, there there must have been like a familial link or something because he's really uh, concerned about the lives of his employers. You know, he says, like, don't kill them. Mm. So I think it must be stronger than just um, just employers. Or they just really pay well, and he's like, "That's this is how I make my living." But still, yeah, f that dude. Right. Um, okay, so maybe my favorite part of the movie that I've been thinking about the most lately is um, the connection to, of Joaquin getting spotted by uh, that dude's kid. You know, yeah. and it kind of seems like a throwaway. Like, oh yeah, I, I totally get why he'd be paranoid about it and why he'd want to drop connections. Like that's just the type of guy he is. He's been hurt in the past. He's a paranoid dude. But then it comes full circle, and it does end up being the thing that gets uh, gets his mom killed. Yeah, I love that whole like montage from when he calls. Um, is it John? Is John the handler? And he's like, John, what the fuck, man? They shot me in the face. And then he like <laughs> goes to McCleary's house, and he. Um, and he sees the cat and that whole montage into him finding out that like everyone that he like cared about or was afraid of mm-hmm. is now dead. <laughs> yeah, really good. Uh, I, I like following it and it hurts to see his mom dead. Um, 
but then then it turns into what a movie about revenge how do you guys think this fits into the genre uh, this is so interesting that we are 50 minutes into this podcast and now we are just talking about how <laughs> late into the movie, just, just like this podcast, this movie becomes a revenge movie. Mm-hmm. So there's like 20 minutes left by the time it becomes a revenge movie. And like literally seven or eight of those minutes are spent with him burying his mother. Yeah, it's sad. But I think you could argue that the, the, the beginning is kind of revenge for his own trauma of what he's gone through. And he's just like taking it out on on the sex traffickers on the world. That's what I was going to say because his dad, like, was abusive to him and his mother. And I think he, like, he doesn't enjoy taking, like, or being violent and killing all these people. But it it is cathartic for him to hurt these people who treat women especially like shit. Mm-hmm. And, like, abuse them and do like horrific things to them yeah you guys have been talking about a lot of like neat tied in things and this is why i think this movie won best screenplay at can is because anybody watching it could really see it as like a super sloppy movie that doesn't really just kind of goes along and you know we get to the end it's like well he's already dead this like movie kind of feels like an anti-revenge movie it is really really tight like for an 89 minute movie and like adam said it all comes back together and it all works thematically it links together very very well I think on Letterboxd they put that you would be hard-pressed to find a movie that's this short, that packs this clean and emotional of a punch. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, great pick, Adam. What a fun, funny movie. Yeah, happy to. Uh, King of comedy, Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> uh, there is some, some humor at the end there in the diner with uh, after he blows his brains out and everyone's not reacting to it. I feel like uh, it's supposed to be you know kind of uncomfortable, but I like that there's blood on the back of the guy's head behind him. And the woman who puts down the check, you know, and her hands are all bloody too. Yeah, and she's like, "Have a uh, here's your check. Have a great day." <laughs> yeah, yeah, hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's rate this bad boy, uh, Olivia. Here at Ghost Party Radio, Trevor and I have created a uh, extremely arbitrary and Byzantine scoring system. So uh, we're going to start with you as we go around for these categories that we came up with. And you just rank them uh, 1 to 10, and you can explain it if you want to. All right. Sounds good. All right. Here we go. Category 1. How effed over is the good guy at the beginning of the story? Ooh, boy. How effed over is the good guy? Yeah. Mm, I would say at the beginning, like a 4. Hmm. So his trauma I mean, obviously higher from his childhood trauma, but... He completed a job. Mm-hmm. He got paid. If we're setting stasis, yeah, I'd say a four. Interesting. Okay. He gets increasingly effed, but. Right. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot I go second. Um, I'm going to double that. I'm giving it a, an eight. I think that at the beginning of this story, Walking Phoenix is pretty effed over. And I'm going to give you a spoiler. Each guest gets to give us uh, their own personal award for our outro episode to give away. And the Kevin Cookman Award is based off of The Handmaiden, but. Um, you, I mean, your award doesn't have to be based on the movie you're talking about. It can just be any award you want to give away for revenge. But his is the Kevin Cookman Award for biggest diss on an entire country, Adam. And I think that the way this movie plays out, I think it's a heavy contender for that award because he is left just like Adam. Many of our servicemen and women, <laughs> after they get out of the service, for dead and for not, with not the proper mental illness, um, you know, care and preparation. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I don't know, maybe this is a weird trilogy that Joaquin was doing with Joker and all. And there's another movie around this time very similar to this. But I think he's in bad, bad, bad shape, and it shouldn't have to be that way. Uh, I'm giving it an eight. I hadn't even thought about the the military aspect of it. Yeah, he is pretty effed. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, the master kind of touches on that also, which is interesting. Yeah, sorry, that that that's what it is. Yeah. That's that that is the trilogy, which is so shitty. But it's uh, the master you would never really hear and uh, Joker. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm never gonna finish that trilogy. Um, <laughs> I'd probably give it a seven. I'm kind of a, I agree with you, Trevor, and I also agree with Olivia in the fact that like he gets effed over. I mean, you could bump this up to a ten. Um, halfway through the movie but the category is at the beginning of this story yeah or, or chronologically at the beginning so if, so if, if there was a flashback to mm-hmm. what we would be get, think is the beginning of the story which we do get we do get flashbacks to him being abused as a child then going to you know the service which he, you know that's not great then he becomes an fbi agent i think that's what his hat said and it's just the whole time he's just being effed over and effed over and effed over so when we get to him he's in pretty bad shape and i was tempted to give it a 10 adam but i'm gonna stick with an eight. you know what i'll bump mine up to a nine wow oh shoot now i feel like i have to bump mine you don't up have to it's okay i'm gonna no i'm gonna take i'm gonna i'm gonna bump it just a little bit higher up i feel like it just needs somewhere to go so i'll say six okay yeah all right all right uh category two how uh or are the stakes justified on his uh, rampage of revenge? Is he in the right to be doing all this stuff to these people? Is this on a scale of 1 to 10? Yeah, so how justified? How justified is he? Yeah. Um, mm, I, I, I'm kind of a pacifist, so I don't believe in, like, hurting other people. I'm going to say 7. In the, in the context okay. of everything, I will give it a 7. Okay. Yeah, Olivia. So you don't you don't want pedophiles to get hurt or anything? Oh no, I want pedophiles to hurt, but I just I don't um, I, I yeah I don't I don't know what to say. You I'm, a, I'm a bit of a softy at heart, so uh, not for pedophiles though. That's the moral complexity of this movie: is that exactly. people want to pay? They want to pay. I like the, like the letterbox review that I read earlier. It's like, oh yeah, it's Joaquin Phoenix just with that old boy swag walking around with a hammer, beating up pedophiles. And I'm like, yeah, that does sound awesome. And that movie directed by Lynn Ramsey sounds awesome. But this is a veteran who is in really bad mental health shape, who is getting paid to carry out hits. Like so, it's like extreme. He is doing the only thing he knows how to do, which is like hurt and kill people. Um, he was abused as a child. It's very, very odd. So are we talking about the stakes here when he actually, uh, once the movie becomes a full revenge movie, the, after that, are the stakes justified? Or are you just, from the very beginning, are the stakes justified? Yeah, you know, I think just, uh, yeah, overall on the whole timeline. I, I'm, it's tough. I'm, I'm just going to cop out and give it an eight like I did the last time. I think that it, I, there doesn't need to be any justification for it to hammer a pedophile to death. <laughs> but um, not saying I'm not saying I would commit murder on someone, but I'm saying that uh, I, I, he didn't have to be paid to do it. So that kind of mm-hmm. takes away some points for me. Right. That's what I was saying. The payment for me is makes it different. But um yeah, please don't dox Trevor for <laughs> for saying that it's okay to uh, kill ho- horrific people. Right. Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, I mean, I agree with you guys, but then in the second half, like, with his, to save the girl, I think it's completely justified. So I'm going to give it a 10. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Strong. Um, all right, let's get into category three. 
how good is the conversation before the storm? This is the trope in revenge movies where someone tries to talk the protagonist out of the revenge that they want. Is there a conversation before the storm in this? Film? I don't know if there is. I don't feel like there is. Oh, 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 oh! It, there definitely is a moment yeah. where he wants to kill himself in the in the in the. So it's, oh. it, so and, and then he sees, sees Nina. Nina. Right. So it's yeah. almost a reverse so conversation. Right. It's it's literally exactly. It's the it's the exact opposite of a conversation before the storm. Literally saying, "You should go get revenge." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I don't know how to rate that because it's not a conversation. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah, let's start with Trevor because I don't know either. <laughs> I'm giving it a zero. Zero. Because there's no conversation? There is no conversation before the storm of this movie. And like Adam said, there is quite literally the opposite. Hmm. Okay. What are you thinking, Olivia? Mm, I... Uh, it's hard because... It's not a conversation, and obviously he's not being convinced out of everything, but part of the storm is that he is about to kill himself, and then he ends up living for something else. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'll give it a two. Okay, nice. Just a little bit of points. All that straining for a two. I'm going to give it another yeah. ten, baby. Whoa! Yeah. What the heck? It's still, in my mind, it's still a conversation. There is a storm coming, and I love the beauty in that scene of, of its wordless conversation. It's underwater, it, and he knows what he has to do. But it's the exact opposite of the trope, though. It's literally her being like, avenge me. Yeah, but... Please come get, please come get me. Yeah, but it's still a conversation before the storm. All right, all right. I'll bump mine up to a two. I'll Ooh. Olivia. Nice. All right. High five. Uh, category four. How strong is the closure at the end of the story? This is tough because it, it is open-ended, so there actually isn't any closure, but we'll just talk about, like, how, how strong is the clo- like the ending of the story. Right. Um, I'd give it, like, an eight. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more between the two of them, um, especially after all they've been through. Mm-hmm. Um. But I feel like um, also because of what they've all been through, I feel like it, it's fine t- to leave off kind of knowing that they're safe with each other for now. It doesn't mean that nothing bad's going to happen later on, but I think for now, I, I felt a lot of peace and like relief knowing that they ended up together, especially after his like suicidal ideation in the diner right i was very relieved when she when she taps on his head (laughs) and he's actually not dead Mm -hmm. so i would say an eight Uh, i'm looking at the roster of movies we've discussed or we're going to discuss in this revenge series and this is my favorite ending to a movie that we've done Mm -hmm. or we will do so for me it's 10 Uh, i love that they end up together Uh, i love an open-ended ending that i that i can see as purely optimist um in such a dark 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 movie so it's a, it's a 10 for me yeah you know i'm gonna have to go with my gut check my first initial reaction and go with a 10 also baby oh, whoa 10s across the board yeah. for adam yeah so you know i mean I, I agree with what you're saying olivia completely i think um and i think my favorite part is that maybe that that shot in the head was him killing him his old self you know and now that he's found himself again he is here finally uh, it's very deeply emotional. Yeah, I love I love that ending. Uh, 
Category five. All right, now now we gotta have some fun here. <laughs> How cool slash clever are the weapons in this movie? Uh, it's like a six. A six, huh? Five. They're like pretty normal weapons that you would use. You're not a fan of ballpoint hammers? Ballpoint hammers? Yeah. Um, no. I don't actually know what they're used for as actual tools as well. <laughs> it seems very painful. So, like, mm-hmm. I guess if you were, like, it w- if it was about inflicting, like, maximum pain and damage, it'd be pretty, like, unique. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like as obje- as weapons, as objects themselves, I'd give it, like, a f- between a five and a six. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of all the movies where a protagonist uses a hammer to get revenge. We think of Old Boy. Mm-hmm. We think of Nicholas Winding Reference Drive. Mm-hmm. And then we might think of this movie. So I'm thinking four on this one, Adam. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it becomes iconic within the movie, you know. And I like that he has a connection that we see a scene where he picks out his weapon and he's really into it. Um, can I stop? Can I stop you real yeah. quick? Um, so this is your pick, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to remind the audience listening that Adam has given this film so far a nine, a ten, a ten, and a ten. <laughs> so let's let's see him twist his words here to try to get this one to. A I'm 10. not stacking the board. I promise. Um, yeah, I think I, 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 my initial reaction is also to be a six because uh, I do think it's a solid hammer. I like that there is a connection. Yeah, and the scene of him picking it out is always yeah, fun. Yeah, let's make it a ten. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all right, and then for our bonus category here, Olivia, uh, how cool is the final showdown location? Oh. So I guess this would be the, the governor's mansion. I loved it. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I, it, it was just, like, the drive up to it, and, and you see, like, the estate, and you see, like, the grandeur of the inside of the building, and it's, like, this old mansion, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it was very different than, like, most of the other locations we've seen in the film, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to give it a nine. Nice. I don't know. I was just a really, especially the outside with all the ivy. I was like, oh, it's spooky and we're going to do some shit here. <laughs> yeah. And you're a sucker for period piece movies. Exactly. Yeah. And when he, oh, when he stands looking at it. Yes, I was ready. <laughs> um, hmm. Trevor? Yeah, uh, I liked it. I liked the ivy. I thought it was a pretty building, but uh, I've seen it before. I've seen it before in this very series. So I'm giving it a six. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'm in the same camp. I also like uh, the interior of it all, but I, I'm, I struggle to find the tie-in meaning to the rest of it, and so I'd give it a five. So this is going to lead me to adding up all of our scores like so. Olivia, on our very, very arbitrary system, uh, so the way it works is basically this score is out of 50 because the bonus point doesn't count. So you have five oh. categories at 10 points each. The bonus is just a bonus. So out of 50, technically, you have given the film a 38 Oh, okay. Pretty good. Very, very strong. Very, very strong. Uh, I have given the film a 37, so very, very close to you. Mm. And then, Adam, weirdly, you have given the film a perfect 50 out of 50 score. (laughs) Wow. Weirdly. Weirdly enough. Thanks to that bonus category. Yes, which brings the total for the film to 125, which is very, very strong against the other competition. Huh, interesting, but probably still not. We the can't strongest. give any. We can't give any actual context uh, about how it did because that would be spoiling the other episodes. You'll have to listen to our outro to revenge episode to see. But very very strong uh, from what I'm looking at. 
Uh, it's ranking fairly high. So congratulations to Lynn Ramsey and Joker Phoenix. <laughs> Woo! Um, all right. Well, Olivia, do you have in mind an award that you'd want us to uh, award one of these movies? Um, It'll be prefaced as the Olivia Cridle Award for... Uh, gruesomest Injury. Whoa, that's good. Okay. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some pretty heavy competition here in these movies. You know, I'm just thinking about the gun blast to the face. Yeah. Well, we we unfortunately already do have the Zishan Yunus Award for best kill. Is this too similar? Ooh. I don't think so. Okay, because injuries are different. Yeah. So it has to be. Is it some something where someone doesn't die? Is that what we're saying? That's how I read it. But what do you think, Olivia? I think it's well because I was basing it off of when he gets shot in the face and he doesn't die from that. So I was just thinking like something violent and hurtful that happens to someone they don't end up dying interesting all right so the crow will not win this one (laughs) (laughs) Uh, actually yeah no we're not (laughs) i love it great choice olivia and uh, thank you um you know thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate having you here do you have anything to plug um oh no i don't um you can find me at all of my social medias. I'm pretty sure they're all my first and last name, Olivia Cridal, if you would like to follow me. I think that's my letterbox, too. I'm trying to get back on that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm sure you're going to be uh, in something pretty soon. Uh, <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not my own short film, uh, I'm excited to see whatever you're going to be a part of. Thank you. Um, yeah, my my acting website is myfirstandlastname.com. Um, if you guys, my resume and stuff is on there. Please employ me. <laughs> and can you give me a spelling on that uh, for your letterbox? I oh, yeah. Me. It's Olivia, O-L-I-V-I-A, Cridle, K-R-I-D-L-E. Hey, I was right. Okay, cool. Nice. I will follow you on Libertox. What about you, Trevor? Uh, oh, of course, my plugs are at Trevor Dills on Instagram and in, and uh, what's the other one called? Twitter. <laughs> and then, um, of course, follow us at Ghost Party Picks on all social media. And, of course, I have a Lebertox at Captain Dills. I wish I had just some form of any of those being the exact same, but they're always different and they're always the same. Close enough. <laughs> uh, and uh, for me, follow me at Projector Fuel on Instagram. I'll post the movies that I'm watching. Um, I think that about does it. Thank you so much for listening to Ghost Party Radio. Uh, Trevor? Uh, We were never really here. Bye. Bye. Mm, That's a 10.